0: Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast.
1: Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, Nihau, hao, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. I'm so glad you could join us today, and we really appreciate your listening. We are so lucky to have as our guest C.J. Pennington, whom I have known since we both worked in sales for United States lines in the 1980s. It's true, I have a soft spot in my heart for the ocean shipping business because it's where I started my illustrious career. But let's face it, shipping ocean or air is an enormously important piece of the export supply chain. During his career, C.J. has held senior management positions and represented large global ocean shipping companies directly and through agents, including U.S. Lines, Hapag Lloyd, Senator Lines, and United Arab Shipping Company. Today, he serves as Dredge Manager North American Services for Cowan Systems. So now I am very pleased to introduce C.J. Pennington. Hello, C.J., and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, Dessie. It's an honor to be here.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great. That's so great that you're here. Uh, You know, CJ, you are one of the first people I knew that had received a college degree in international transportation, logistics, and distribution. You see, I was one of those liberal arts brats. So uh, (laughs) I I always thought that was really cool. Uh, So tell us about it. You attended the University of Tennessee where I think they have one of the premier logistics programs, don't they?
2: Well, yes, yes. Actually, um, you know, I grew up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My father was a scientist out at uh, X10. And, um, you know, honestly, the closest school to my hometown was uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Right. Right next door. Uh, And I'd always planned on going there. Um, But, you know, I just planned on having a business degree. Uh, It wasn't until... I was at the the, uh, university, I guess, about a year um, that I started, um, you know, trying to decide exactly what it was I wanted to do in life. I I knew I wanted to be in aviation, uh, either, uh, you know, join the Air Force or the Navy and be a a pilot or, or, you know, my real dream was to be an astronaut. And, uh, uh, you know, my father did a lot of work with uh, NASA and I, I was exposed to it greatly and Uh, And, you know, it was the right time back in those days, uh, you know, uh, space was big, people were going to the moon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's something that really, uh, you know, was in my focus. But uh, I got to school and I I, I started flying. I'd I'd flown earlier in life and pretty much my whole life, Uh, but got up to my commercial rating and realized it was something I I really didn't want to do for a living. Uh. and, and uh, in the middle of that, um, I started taking some classes, uh, one of which was uh, a logistics class, uh-huh. a transportation and logistics class. And in the middle of that, uh, I realized I really enjoyed uh, what I was studying. And I found it really hands-on. The school at that time was the number one school in the nation. And I think it had been the number one school in the nation in logistics for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, I it think was, it still uh, is. Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I'm i not sure today, but it's up there. Yes. And uh, Dr. Joe Fry was the gentleman, uh, the head professor that ran the program. Colonel Kirschenstein, John Kirschenstein was underneath him. They were very old friends. Uh, uh, Dr. Fry wrote the, the Bible of Transportation, which we studied in depth over many years at school. Yeah. And uh, uh, before it was over, uh, I ended up uh, being exposed to the container industry uh, through John Kirchenstein, Kirchenstein who uh, was a close friend of, of uh, Malcolm McClain's.
1: Oh my gosh. And,
2: uh, yes, and um, uh, next thing you know it, I'm uh, uh, signed up for a European study tour where we were to pick a subject, and then while we were overseas visiting all these places, I, each one of us would go off a particular place that was specific to our studies. Uh-huh. Uh, and I ended up going to Rotterdam, Hamburg, uh, you know, I uh, actually worked at BLG Bremerhaven for a short time. I actually worked at Beer uh, for a short time learning their logistics. Oh, that must have been operate.
1: awful. That must have been just a it was- drudgery. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was. It was just terrible. <laughs> no, uh, it was actually a really lovely experience. And uh, eventually, in the middle of this, I I end up in London, actually in in, in Southampton, and I'm at the Royal Transport Corps, and I'm studying rapid deployment, which is what I ended up writing my uh, exit paper, uh, my thesis uh, from this trip about. And um, I, I ended up on the SLS, that several weeks later ended up uh, the, the one that was sunk in the Falklands hit by the Exocet missile.
3: Oh my God! And I was
2: learning how the the uh, uh, the British military, the Royal Transport Corps, uh, had their own rapid deployment force using containerization. Gosh. Um he- Heavy lift military vehicles putting in super containers and um, uh, containers loaded with uh, uh, ammunition that could orbit in places on the you know in the oceans where where uh, hotspots were and therefore when troops were dropped in they immediately had their supplies at hand instead of them ha- having to be uh, uh you know uh, shipped down taking yeah. several weeks
1: Fascinating. so they
2: really did have a rapid deployment force at that yeah. point yeah. so i i wrote a paper on it um and i also went to military lift command in in virginia and mtmc Uh, Military Traffic Management Command, uh, before the trip. And uh, by the time it's all over, um, I I learned to love the container shipping industry. It was relatively new at the time. Yeah. I don't believe we had quite hit a million containers in the world yet. Right. Uh, And, you know, people still thought of ships as being- um, Bulk. You know, the old break bulk vessels. Break
1: bulk, exactly.
2: Yeah, and and here we're in a brand new industry that's about to change the entire world. It's in the process of changing the entire world. Exactly. And now it has changed the world.
3: It
1: has. Um, That is the most amazing college experience I think I've ever heard. I mean, people go abroad and they, you know, they have a good time. That's amazing. Wow, that was lucky. I was
2: very fortunate. Colonel Kirchenstein uh, was a tank commander in World War II. He was Alexander Hague's right-hand man at NATO. He ran logistics for the Vietnam pullout um, and ran logistics for NATO uh, at one point and had many connections and uh, took me under his wing and um, gave me the exposure to many, many people, um, including the people in NATO. So by the time I got out of school and graduated, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I wanted to work for one of the The premier carriers, uh, of which at the time it was Sealand, Maersk, Hapig-Lloyd. You know, they were the perfect carriers. Right. They did everything exactly right. Uh, U.S. Lines was just coming up very quickly and about to surpass all these lines. Uh, But I really didn't know anything about U.S. Lines uh, when I... Yeah, I just heard about it
1: from a friend. I didn't know about it either. But, you know, Malcolm had sold Sealand... Uh, to RJ Reynolds, and he bought mm-hmm. U.S. lines to make it bigger than Sealand, make it the, you know, the largest global carrier. That was his idea. You, you know. almost
2: did it. Yeah, almost.
1: Got <laughs> close. <laughs> That's,
2: that, one one mistake. Yeah, we, the, we
1: can get to that. that was different. Exactly. You know, it's,
2: it's, it's an interesting story with, with, with the line, with U.S. lines. You know, it was a different day and time. We had antitrust immunity. Right. Um, Lines would, uh, you know, uh, you you had lines that were in uh, conferences, and then you had the one or two lines that were independent, the the mega lines that were independent. Right. And uh, the lines that were in the conference pretty much stayed in control, and the rates stayed pretty stable for people for most part.
1: let me just say for people who are listening the, uh, and, and don't know as much about the ocean shipping business the conferences uh, were a legal way to fix rates among the carriers they all had the same rates basically and at least yeah, and it
2: wasn't a bad thing you know what people don't understand that are not in transportation and even yeah. some in transportation uh, and this is one of the things I learned at University of Tennessee. And it, and it actually took quite a while to understand this, but um, there's competition and then there's destructive competition. Right. And the idea of a conference was transportation has to, has to support public convenience and necessity. Right. You know, we need transportation. Right. We can't afford to have a, a um, fly-by-night transportation system because our economy would falter. Uh, we wouldn't get have the goods and services we need. The military would be in trouble. Everybody would be in trouble. Right. So they came up with this plan of allowing for uh, somewhat of a, 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 an immunity, antitrust immunity, if these lines behave themselves. And, and the Federal Maritime Commission, you know, was very tightly controlling this. But what it allowed for was competition but not destructive competition where each line beats each other up. Until there's nothing left, and then nobody has service
1: exactly. anywhere well of I any a, value. Perf- a perfect example of that is when u s lines and evergreen came out with the super you know Panamax container ships, I mean they like trebled their capacity, and oh yeah, all of a sudden oh, they yeah. got they got even within conferences, they got into a rate war, and I remember we couldn't give away commodity containers to carry commodities to Asia. I mean, uh, a, a, a waste paper container oh, yeah, was like yeah. $500, which didn't cover any of the costs. It was, you know, so.
2: Um, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was that was a time where people of, of our age, from our time as young people in the business, if we took a close look at that and understood exactly what happened there, uh, it, it stayed with you for the rest of your life.
3: It did. And
2: w- what had happened there was you had conferences that ke- kept rates at a level that allowed them to survive, not by much, but yeah, let them survive. And then you had the one or two carriers, like an evergreen, that were on the outside, and their rates were almost exactly five percent below. Isn't that about right? Oh yeah, yeah. oh
1: yeah, they they, yeah, they just, want to be they wouldn't they give could. a dime.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, they would stay as high as they could, but it was usually about 5% below what the conference carriers were. Right. And U S lines uh, was trying to do really amazing things and they did a lot of amazing things. Yeah. Uh, Teaching, teaching young people how to sell, teaching young people how to be regimented in their careers. And, uh, you know, and, and, and we learned a lot. Matter of fact, most of, my success has come from my training at U.S. Lines. Oh, it was but amazing. The, the fact oh. of the matter is what, what ended up happening here was these these uh, uh, the carriers. We were all in a conference. U.S. Lines builds these, uh, I guess, what were they, Panamax vessels? Yeah, Panamax, they were correct?
1: Panamax. They
3: were Panamax.
1: Yeah, the Panamax. Uh,
2: and I still remember the advertisement for it. It was the first ship where when we had the brochure, you had to fold the brochure out I think three folds <laughs> showed the whole vessel. Yeah. And it was, I, remember I still have one or two of those uh, brochures oh, and man, they were incredibly awesome. impressive. And the ship size was literally double any ship of its day. What they were doing was they yeah. were they were betting on economies of scale. You know, ships in, or vessels in general uh, are, have such and such fixed cost. And, and these costs, whether the ship's twice as long or twice as big. You know, let's say you have one ship that's a thousand TEUs and one ship that's two thousand TEUs. Right. Well,
1: that's twenty the foot engine, equivalent. Crew, units. All that's
2: about the same cost wise.
1: Let me just so, say, let me just I, say for our listeners, a TEU is twenty foot equivalent units. That's a twenty foot container. So in a slot that's four. For the the slots in a ship are forty feet long, but you could put either one forty foot in there an FEU or two twenty foot's a TEU. That's just so people can envision. Yeah, the
2: simplest way to look at it for those that haven't really don't understand con- containerization is when you see a tractor trailer on the road, uh, that for all practical purposes is about the length of a forty foot container. Right. And right. and a twenty foot container is half of that, and um, the ship was measured by TEUs, 20-foot containers. Right. So uh, uh, in, in this case, let's say you have one ship, and let's just talk containers, we won't even talk size. Yeah. It's 1,000 containers, which would be maybe mm, eh, about the size of, of a ship of that day. Uh, and now US lines build ships that are 2,000, what was it, 2,260, I think it was, or 40, something like that. Uh, uh, it was a big number. It was over. Oh no! It's
1: like four thousand TEUs, wasn't
2: it? Oh yes, and it was yes, right, exactly four thousand TEUs. So so uh, it, it's enormous, and and the economies of scale there are enormous because what different. happens here is the cost of running the ship doesn't go up by very much when you increase the size of the ship. At least in that day, it did And to be honest, I think today is the same thing. Well, also um, let's and-
1: remember, let's remember that when. Uh, Malcolm McLean envisioned these super ships. Uh, he also thought that the price of oil was going to stay high too. There was a, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or,
2: and, and to- for, you know, and here it is. <laughs> what, what, what do we have today? Yeah, uh, exactly. So he 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 was he was a genius in, in his own way. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what happened was um, the, the man who has. The most TEUs or, or most space on a ship makes the most money when times are good. But when times go bad, the man with the most base on a vessel loses the most.
1: Exactly. exactly. And
2: what happened was we stepped out of the conference and we, we were going to with these big ships. And we thought, well, we'll be he thought we'll be an independent, just like Evergreen. Right. And, you know, the conference will stay together. They'll keep the rates up, and U.S. lines and Evergreen will be the independents worldwide. And we'll have these big ships. We can make literally triple what we were making before because our costs are so. Uh, the economies of scale give us a margin that's enormous. We still and, had American uh,
1: Cruise, think, even though the what's ship. What's that? We still had American oh, yeah, America, Cruise. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, and American Cruise were expensive. Exactly. Uh, still are compared to uh, Henry, but,
1: a Taiwanese. Kid. But your,
2: the, the costs were. The economies of scale were so large that that it you know overshadowed all of that and, right. and made them, they would have been incredibly profitable. The only problem was, when they left the conference, the one thing they didn't think about was, uh, what if the conference falls apart? And then the, all the rates take a dive. And that's what which happened. Which is exactly what happened.
1: That's what happened. And
2: the conference fell apart. Uh, the rates went down to almost nothing and now the man with the most space on his ships, which was Malcolm McLean and U.S. lines, yeah, uh, starts losing billions of dollars. And they couldn't afford that. And they had 12 of these ships. Exactly. And I must tell you, it was a sad day when they went out of business. I actually was going over the, the bridge. Uh, was it Highland Hook? I believe it is. Yeah,
3: Highland uh, Hook. And at
2: one point, when they would finally went bankrupt, uh, I saw, I don't know if it was all 12 of the ships, but it was awful close to all 12 were parallel uh, uh, I moored off the terminal there. And it was stunning to see the largest ships in the world all sitting in one place at one time. Actually, tempting.
1: some of them were tied up in Manhattan, as I recall. Some of them were tied up in Singapore. Uh, and
2: Well, this was a bit later. This was, yeah. uh, you know, it, they'd been uh, bankrupt for a while. Right. And I think eventually they all ended up back Highland Hook, but I could be yeah. wrong. Uh, well, I but there was were there. were an awful lot of them, and, yeah. and it was stunning to see this. Um, as
1: you recall, and it, and it
2: taught everybody in our business a big lesson. You know, oh. it really did.
1: Well, as you now, recall, I was I was on the West Coast when, so I was there at the very, very end. <laughs> When, oh yeah, yeah. When we were, when our paycheck said debtor in possession.
2: <laughs> oh boy! But,
1: but they did, yeah. Uh, yeah. At the very end, they did start uh, seizing ships in foreign ports. They, uh, they, they closed yeah. down the east coast, and they were still running a service back and forth to the west coast until the very end. But, uh, uh, but during the heyday, it was it was really something, and that quite amazing. Now did you, did you start? And we caught all of that.
2: We caught the end of the heyday and we caught uh, what has become uh, pretty much what we're in today.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, It's become a a really uh, volatile and um, uh, very tough business. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not for everyone. It's uh, a business where for a long period of time after us lines, uh, as an example, Maersk um, continued to build larger and larger vessels, and, and I don't think they built larger and larger vessels because you know they just wanted to build big ships and have more capacity than anybody else. I think they built it built them for economies of scale, and and that worked for a very long time for Maersk, and they were yep. very very profitable. Right. And I but I think now. They finally got ships up to a size where you can't build, them. at least you know, I'm sure you could, but yeah. nobody wants to build a ship uh, larger than, you know, 20,000 TEs, 22,000 TEs. It, it becomes um, almost, um, how should I put it, uh, you know, if something goes wrong with a ship like that. That's yeah you know the gross national product of some country yes uh you know uh yeah, and and, exactly. uh, and you got problems of where you can pull you know where the ships can go into port because of their draft um but for a long time they continue to build larger ships than everybody else, and I think those economies of scale kept them way above board and very right. profitable well, those days are gone now they and are. now even Merck is hurting uh, it's it's a it's a tough time right now. The yeah. the lines that we knew probably, I would have to say, you know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, I would say uh, three-quarters of them are gone.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, U.S. lines absorbed uh, a couple of, like, South American and South African lines, I remember. Maybe Delta Line, too. There was one, mm-hmm. a shipping line. They absorbed a few at the time, so there was some consolidation in the American shipping business. I mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, what is what was known as U.S. flag carriers doesn't exist anymore.
2: No, they don't. They don't. Which is a, a kind of a scary thing. It because, is uh,
1: for defense. We're depending on
2: other countries' vessels to support us in the time of the war. Exactly. I think that's not very prudent. No,
1: nope. uh, uh, and that's but that's what happened over the. 90s. uh, It really consolidated. But so let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. Did you first go to Beale & Company and then U.S. Lines or was U.S. Lines? No, no.
2: I started, I actually got out of college in the middle of recession. Uh, uh, Vince Staunton, uh, Senior VP at Sealand, who was a friend of uh, Colonel John Kirstenstein, he was the gentleman that took care of their uh, issues in Washington. Very well-known man, really kind fellow. Um, turned out when I was a kid, uh, he lived above us at Hilton Head and had come downstairs he and his wife to borrow sugar from.
3: <laughs> and I didn't
2: know him at the time. Wow. And uh, he came to he came to our university, and I would go pick the the uh, the speakers up um, at the airport. And we were in the car talking when I first met him. And, it, and that's when it came up that we were neighbors no. <laughs> in the summertime. And uh, we became very, very close friends. He was a very kind man. And I intended on going to Sealand right out of school. But the yeah. recession was terrible when I got out of school. Yeah. And they weren't hiring anybody. He couldn't get me in to save his life.
3: Uh, yeah.
2: And, and uh, they just had a, a lockdown. So I went to work. I moved to Atlanta and went to work for Brown Transport. It was the largest privately owned motor carrier in the country. Oh, right. I actually worked for Claude Brown directly, uh, which was a great experience. Uh, mm-hmm. taught me a great deal about business, transportation, uh, finance. I was involved in uh, uh, public relations very quickly. He put a lot of trust in me and gave me a lot of opportunities, and uh, I, I don't think I let him down. At least I tried not to, and. Uh, so for, I guess, five, six years, five years, um, you know, I flew all over the country opening up terminals. Yes, he actually uh, would put me on his private jet and uh, have me open new terminals up and uh, Goodness. Uh,
3: buy properties
2: cool. for the for the uh, company. And uh, it was it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, after about my fifth year, you know, I was getting antsy. I wanted to do what I really wanted to do. Um, and uh, I. I Put out a resume to U.S. Lines, and a uh, gentleman what was his name—Byron uh, By- Hawk. Oh yeah. Uh, who uh, who ran the the office in in uh, Atlanta? Uh, yeah. He was kind of the golden child of U.S. Lines, I believe. Uh, quite a quite a really interesting man,
3: uh-huh.
2: uh, and very smart. Um, he he received my resume, and when I showed up for the interview, as anybody as you're a bit nervous especially because you're so so young and he looks at the resume and he goes did you just write this resume to fit u.s lines because this is perfect oh, <laughs> that was my mouth just opened up after all that i was expecting to, to hear you know that was the last thing in the world and uh, i don't think he had ever gotten a resume from a transportation student from, from a, a university oh good and uh, i mean there were kids there in our office you know there were kids in our office that had textile engineering degrees and every kind of degree in the world you could dream of but nobody had transportation degrees and uh and he hired me right on the spot and that was the start of a a 30-year career
1: they hired uh they hired people they their philosophy was that if somebody has the personality for sales we can train them to sell our product and they i remember they hired a lot of college athletes and and mm-hmm. all different kinds of people that they thought they could train lord knows how i fit into that <laughs> i know well they, they were they were looking to bring women in uh in the uh, 1980s i joined in 82 so uh uh, but that was the philosophy, and as you and I have discussed, uh, it was a sales-driven philosophy for the whole co- for the whole company. Mm. Uh,
2: yeah, highly regimented, uh, sales-oriented. Uh, one of the few lines that I've ever worked for that trained people and not didn't just train them one time, continually right. train them yes. and train them in detail.
3: Yes, on how
2: to to negotiate. Uh, I mean, we used to just as a practice, they would have us negotiate at hotels when we were at the counter and you were with your big boss. <laughs> yes,
3: you know, I remember that. You,
2: you weren't to take the rate that they gave you. <laughs> you know, in, in those days, you showed up at the hotel and and you they tell you what the rate is. And it wasn't like today where you're on the internet right. and, uh, and you'd give you a rate and you'd say, well, that's just not going to work. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you were to negotiate until yeah. you got something. You know, you would go crazy over it, but, you know, you would in a civilized fashion negotiate. And, it, and it's kind of you didn't do that. You weren't you're were kind of frowned upon. Exactly. And, um, and 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 we were really good at what we did. And we had a lot of confidence in ourselves because we had the training. And uh I, I must admit, it was one of the, the greatest experiences of my life in business. Um I learned more there than in any other job I've ever had. I
1: agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Uh I it was and, uh, it was really it, hard it was, work, it, but it was fun. It was really it was, hard. T- it was hard
2: I, I remember um if you got five hours sleep a night, you were a lucky person. Yeah. And and you worked all weekend. You know, back in those days, you didn't have a, a notebook computer. You would go home with a ream of uh, the vessels that were that you just loaded, the ones you were going to load, the ones that went out.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. And you'd go through that and make sure all your customers were on that ship.
1: Exactly. And yeah. if they
2: weren't there, your 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 superior would question you about that. Right. And wanted to know why you were two TEU short. And and that sounds like an exaggeration. It wasn't. You, yeah. you know. Uh, that you know, we really knew our customer base down to the the people that moved, you know, ten containers a year, um, and uh, it was a good thing.
1: It was. But yeah. then
2: after U.S. Lines, pretty much everything changed. It went to a, <clears throat> a whole different format. Um, you know, I, I ended up going to a deal and Company when U.S. Lines folded.
3: Mm-hmm. The
2: funny thing was, my desk was one floor down, exactly below my old desk. Oh. And, and I became the district manager at uh, for Atlanta mm-hmm. um, and uh, at Hapag. Uh, well, I say Hapag, but it was actually Beal and Company
3: mm-hmm.
2: who had represented Hapag for many, many years. And Carl Beal and, and the Hapag family were very close.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, they also represented uh national shipping company in Saudi Arabia and uh, an Australian line that I, I can't remember the name of now. Yeah. Um they were big, and, uh, big
1: agents.
2: Yeah. And yes. Yes. And I, I uh, did pretty well there. Ended up going to Hamburg uh, uh, a number of times as a young man uh, for doing a good job and, and uh, you know uh, meeting all the people over there, uh, including Karl Hansaga, uh, who was my hero. And uh, cool. From there, I ended up. Uh, uh, Work, you know the atlanta market is an interesting market especially back in the 80s the the world was supplied with carpet and carpet was you know everybody used wall-to-wall carpet right and all that carpet came from dalton georgia or let's just say north georgia i call it north georgia uh uh carpet points yeah but basically dalton georgia dalton was the capital Uh, of that you know shaw uh, Image Carpet, Galaxy, all the old mills that are now consolidated into under a few names. Mohawk, now Shaw, things like that. Um, But there used to be, uh, you could go up there, start a mill up tomorrow with one machine and become a millionaire. Matter of fact, there was the largest number of millionaires in one place in America uh, back in the 80s. Also had the highest divorce rate in the nation. So, And, and it was, believe it or not, this town you couldn't get a hotel room in Dalton, Georgia. It was just far enough you would have to stay out of town, you know, from Atlanta. Yeah. Especially if you're going to see five or six or seven or eight clients. And uh, none of these clients moved one or two containers. They all moved enormous quantities uh, of containers. But initially, uh, they didn't want to get involved in, in uh, uh, the export business. You yeah. Know, they found it. Kind of a pain in the neck and difficult to do versus their domestic business, and so sure. they kind of ignored it. Yeah. And uh, while it uh, uh, representing NSCSA, which by the way had a zero percent market share of the largest moving commodities in the Middle East.
1: Now, what 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 was the what did that rep? What's the name represent? Just for uh,
2: National Shipping Company of Saudi Arabia. Right. They were con- container row row vessels.
3: Ah. They're
2: actually. Very nice vessels
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, they were well made uh, they moved a lot of heavy lift machinery, you know for Ramco, things yeah. of that nature, military products but the the top decks of the of the ship were all container,
3: okay, and they were pretty big
2: ships, so they held a lot of containers they really didn't focus on their container business very well
3: ah.
2: and uh here I'm representing them and uh and, and I, I kind of realized that you know we've got all this carpet moving to the uh, uh, all over the world well a gentleman shows up from Kuwait named Ernst Bauer uh he's a german uh a man and mm-hmm. his wife uh Sunita Bauer uh come to atlanta uh talk with all the carpet mills and 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 tell them well you know if you guys don't want to sell this carpet overseas then let me do it for you. Let me be your agent. And he signed up just about every mill in North Georgia.
1: Oh, goodness
2: gracious. Uh, and and became the representation for uh, everybody. Just uh, The only person I think he didn't represent up there that I, that I remember was Galaxy. And I think Galaxy's now sold out to somebody. But, but in any case, um, uh, or maybe it was world, world Carpet. But either way, it was a... Uh, uh, maybe one or two outfits he didn't represent. So, uh, he now goes back overseas. He, he speaks, um, Arabic and he, he, uh, uh, speaks it like you and I, uh, talk English. I mean, he's completely fluent. Yeah. Which is a, a rare commodity for, for a, uh, German, right? Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: And, uh, on top of it, he's the Einstein of, of import export. <laughs> uh I, I don't think he knew it at the time. So he yeah. goes over and he goes and visits Al Rashid. he visits uh everybody you can dream of that is a you know, a senior business uh company in in uh Kuwait, Dubai, uh Saudi, uh you know, everywhere.
3: Had, he
1: already everywhere. Made, everywhere. had he already made those contacts or he went went once he had? No, out?
2: no. He oh, actually man. went over after he made the deal in North Georgia. He went and got on a plane and went over and he talked these people. They had never used wall-to-wall carpeting. In the Middle East, you had hard floors and you had rugs. Yeah. And he convinced all these businessmen to start selling wall-to-wall carpeting. And right. what he did was he didn't buy the high end stuff. Right. He bought stuff where when you look, when you saw the rolls of carpet and you'd look at it, you could see the backing through <laughs> the carpet. Yeah. It was very, very inexpensive carpet. But it actually worked very well because, you know, uh, at dinner time in, in, uh, in many of the Middle Eastern countries, people sit around on the floor with a, with a, a, a centerpiece and they eat, uh, you know, sitting down. Yeah, and it stains up the carpets and all that. Well, they don't clean them. They just don't do that. They throw them away. So you would sell this inexpensive carpet that still looked nice and they would change it out seasonally. Gee. Seasonally, okay? So now you don't have a carpet that goes down for 15 or 20 years. It's being changed out once or twice, maybe three times a year. And uh, he would load just Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxes a week. Biggest problem we had in North Georgia was getting containers. Yeah. We would run out. We would, at any given point on a Monday, we would put maybe 400 containers up there in Dalton. Yeah. uh, Between the mills. And and they would load by color. On Mondays, the (laughs) dye lot of red carpet would come out. So all the containers at this place would fill up with red carpet. And
3: 150
2: bays worth of, of uh containers
3: oh, and
2: then gosh. on tuesday it would be blue wednesday it would be green and go on and on and on and then on friday at uh 3 30 every trucker in north georgia was pulling carpet back to the port
1: wow what a gold mine i'm jealous it was
2: unbelievable <laughs> and uh, it was and hard. then uh and then later on he had competition from a a gentleman, Dr. Khatib, an Alexander carpet, who wasn't really selling carpet as much as fiber. He initially sold carpet, but then, um, uh, if I remember correct, the Shaw people had some old carpet machines, and instead of destroying them or storing them for later use, in the case of a fire or whatever, Mm -hmm. they decided to sell the uh, machines to uh, the Saudis. Now I could be wrong. It might not be Shaw, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it was Shaw. Might have been an independent outfit. But so in they any just, case, uh these were Dalton Georgia carpet machines. So and they just shipped the, the yarn?
1: That, Did they just ship the yarn and have and they made the carpet over there? Well that's
2: what ended up happening. They built Saudi carpet factory. Actually, I shipped all those machines over uh uh to I guess it was it was Riyadh I shipped them to. Can't remember now, it's been so long. Yeah. But we shipped all the machines over there. And they built an enormous factory, and it was called Saudi Carpet Factory. I do believe it's still there I'm sure it's there and it made sense because yeah. uh, if you think about you're making carpet out of well everything from coca-cola bottles to uh, you know as, as reused recycled product, which a lot of carpets made out of yeah um, to fresh uh, resin um, a lot of the resin in those days came. From uh, Aramco and, and uh, the Saudis, right? Employees. Oh, so okay. now they're sitting right on top of all this stuff. The one thing they didn't have was the extrusion uh, machines to turn it into fiber. So okay. uh, Alexander Carpet, Dr. Katib, uh, who who was another genius and a very kind man, uh, turned around and made deals with the North Carolina company that produce fiber, and we would do the same thing with fiber as we did in North Georgia. We would load up two, three, four hundred containers, more likely uh, on on regular weeks about 200 containers, maybe 300, And, and they would all be full of fiber, and they would be going over to Saudi Carpet Factory.
1: It was so cool that you were able to see the evolution of that business. Uh, globally, that that's a pretty cool thing to see, uh, and to be. It was part exciting. Of it, to be a part, and, of it. and
2: it made it made you proud to be part of it. Exactly. And uh, and the, here's the interesting part: Doctor Katib and Ernst Bauer would not, if if uh, Ernst Bauer signed a contract with one carrier, Doctor Katib would not sign with that same ocean carrier,
3: <laughs>
1: and
2: vice versa. Oh wow! And they were arch enemies. And each one thought the other was getting a better rate. Oh, gee. And that they were competing against each other. And I actually convinced both of them at the same time in a room that, uh, they really don't compete each, against each other. One One's doing fiber, one's doing a finished product. Right. And that there's enough for everybody and you all are all doing just fine. <laughs> rate wise, you're, you're right there. Everybody's competitive. And, uh, and I'm the first guy to get, <laughs> I was the first young man uh, to to have both Ernst Bauer and, uh, uh, or I should say, Ibaco and Alexandria Carpet on the same vessel.
3: Wow.
1: And let me
2: tell you, that filled up a ship, top to bottom. Gosh. And. um,
1: That's exciting.
2: uh, And at that point, uh, you know, right in the middle of being successful there, I had a customer that that, uh, was a happy customer that kept asking me to come work for him. And uh, it was a time when uh, you didn't have the euro, you still had the Deutsche Mark and, and uh, you know, all the different European currencies, the lira, all that. Yeah. And uh, the dollar was incredibly strong. I think it was, at, at uh, the peak, it was maybe 3.5 Deutsche Marks to the dollar. So you could buy uh, basically 3.5 times what you could buy in the US if you used the dollar over there. And uh, so, this, this trade started up. Uh, it was the gray market parts trade. Gray market. It, yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, Mercedes and BMWs were becoming very popular in the United States. Yeah. And everybody was able to buy them uh, during the 80s. They, they became yeah. more available. They, they weren't a car just for the ultra wealthy. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were making 325 Beamers and they were making. You know the the uh, diesel one fifteen chassis yeah. uh, four door sedans uh, for Mercedes, and uh, and they became available for everyone. So um, what happened was the the factories overseas. Uh, well, Mercedes would would hire these companies to make sheet metal, yeah, and uh, and you know put their stamp on it and make their wheels. Uh, you know pour pour it in, into molds and and uh, make the aluminum wheels you see on all the Mercedes and these speedometers and everything else under the sun, the, yeah. the uh, 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 parking lamps on the back. Well, they were all made by separate companies. And, um, uh, you know, if your car broke down in the US, you had to take it to a dealership and the dealers were incredibly expensive. Right. Well, at uh, 3.5 marks to the dollar, it started a gray market trade. And these factories, when they quit making product for uh, Mercedes and BMW, Mm -hmm. they didn't shut the machines down. They kept making the product.
3: Okay. And
2: they still put the Mercedes label on it. Some didn't, but some did. Yeah. And uh, so uh, these companies uh, showed up. One was German Auto Parts. One was ATL International. One was uh, Eurasian Auto Parts. They were all in Atlanta. Uh, Dallas Shelton started... German auto parts. That was, I think, the most successful of the companies. It was, it was an and, amazing company.
1: And that's who you went uh, to work
3: for? And,
2: well, I went to work for ATL International. Uh, and um, they were a smaller version. Actually, they all had come from German auto parts. Yeah. And uh, and they would import just scads and scads of container loads of, of these uh, gray market parts. For, for instance, they would buy a container load of mercedes-benz original equipment wheels
3: yeah.
2: directly from the manufacturer whereas uh, a 560 mercedes wheel would be maybe five or six hundred dollars to buy re- uh, retail
1: mm-hmm. uh
2: we would get the wheel for a hundred dollars
1: wow well let me, let me ask and you we something. would
2: buy entire container loads of them God. and bring them in and we brought hundreds and hundreds of containers in Gosh. a month and uh, and that was huge business back then and so I did that for a couple of years. Um, then the Deutschmark changed
3: <laughs> and what? got
2: stronger and uh, and about that time uh, i I ended up uh, at senator lines, which uh, I, I wanted to work there because it was an upcoming line in karl Heinz saga from Happy Lloyd, who was my hero. and yeah. started this independent line and uh, it was exciting. It was kind of like a uh, it was kind of like the Ted Turner in a way, of the ocean business, right? Right. Uh, yeah, uh, with a German accent.
1: Well, let me and, ask you uh, something. Let me ask you something, sure. uh, CJ. You know, at, when we were at U.S. Lines, it was a very, sales was very personal. It was, and we had lots of entertain. We were required to have lots of entertainment, you know, three lunches oh, a yeah. week, two dinners a week, weekend entertainment. By the time you got to, Beal and Hapag and then Senator, had that changed at all? Or was it still like that? As far yeah. Well, uh,
2: let me give an example. And I know where you're going with this because this is kind of a funny story. Uh, uh, when I was, a, you know, starting at U.S. Lines, um, I had uh, I was inbound European and I had a, a very large account up in East Tennessee called Shelby Williams. Yeah. And they supplied uh, hotel furniture. I mean, just about every hotel you went in had Shelby Williams everywhere. Okay. And at this point, they were, and I imagine this was during uh, when the uh, Deutsche Mark and Lira were, were weak against the dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were bringing in these carved uh, uh, chairs, uh, Italian chairs. Yeah. And, and it was a fad at the time. There were a lot coming in. And I'd bring container load after container load. And, uh, so I, I would make an appointment with this traffic manager, I yeah. don't remember his name now, Yeah. Um, uh, and to go up and see him, and he yeah. was in East Tennessee, in the geographically most undesirable place to drive to on the planet, because it's <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. It's not. Right. It's a beautiful area, don't yeah. get me wrong, it's Tennessee, everything's beautiful in East Tennessee. It's just a long ways
3: from right. Atlanta. Right. And,
2: uh, and so, you know, I, I made an appointment with this gentleman to to see him and have lunch with him. Yeah. And um, so I drive up there, and uh, I I get to the location, and I I walk inside, and I I look I look on the couch right there, the waiting couch, and here are the three people, four people that are uh, from U.S. Lines that are at the desk right next to me, all around me. <laughs> and I'm like. So what's going on here are these guys here to take him out to, to see him because I have an appointment yeah well it turns out they heard that I had an appointment with him for lunch and <laughs> so they they showed up to pitch in <laughs> because <laughs>
1: like, oh, we like, had, a, we, had a,
2: uh, we had a a what would you call it a, a quota right. of what was it Four lunches a week, I think it was. Three right? or four. And, Inbound, you probably
1: had yeah. four. We had three on outbound and two dinners a week. Yeah, and, and then, then we one- had
2: three dinners a week we had to have, and then one uh, once a month spe- entertainment. Right. Uh, or every two weeks of entertainment, and then once a month special entertainment.
1: Right, like you know,
2: something uh, really big.
1: I did right. wrong, rafting. Uh, we took uh, when I was up in Philadelphia. We went to a casino and went. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, deep sea fishing. I mean, just oh, yeah, like we that. did all
2: that too, as well. Yeah, so the so these, the, you know, the pressure was so great to get lunches and dinners with people because a lot of people didn't have time for it,
3: right? You
2: know, they were too busy working, and, but it was, you know, it was a quota. And if we didn't get those quotas, you know, we really we kind of got uh shamed you know, uh, in a bit of trouble, we were exactly. shamed, and exactly. and uh. So the pressure was so great that when these people heard my my colleagues heard that I had an appointment with this major <laughs> customer, they all showed up.
3: <laughs> oh man! Uh, just, just, uh, and, uh,
2: and and I was pretty young at the time, and yeah. just let it happen. You know, you what do you do? You know, a exactly. couple of the people were slightly older than me. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, so, so yeah, that was uh, it was a different time. Today, I find. Uh, people have a tendency when you entertain to go out to you know, just your standard little places and have a little bite to eat. And mm-hmm. that's good and fine. Yeah. I personally think that doesn't do a whole lot. It doesn't show a lot of respect to your client. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's better to do less entertainments. But the ones you do make them uh, special uh, memorable. Yes. To your clients.
3: Exactly. And, and
2: show, really show them respect in that, in that way. And uh, that's been my success. In, in my career, I, I'm probably the the, uh, the salesman with the, with the least, uh, the smallest expense account you've ever seen. But the ones I do do, people remember, and uh, and uh, that has worked out nicely. Because the ones exactly. that take care of you, you you want to show them, you know how much you appreciate what they do, because they could be using anybody.
1: Exactly. And they're
2: using, and they're letting you participate in their business you know it's kind of honoring them
1: well i so think that uh, sales is still i think it's important for it to be personal still and this big global mm-hmm. economy i still think those relationships matter but let's you know as we kind of have to wrap wrap up our discussion let's talk about how how the steamship business has changed and what what were some of the significant things that really changed how
2: the steamship
1: yeah from a, from, sales-
2: from a sales point the, the, the list is pretty endless you know there's no uh the antitrust immunity has gone away uh the idea of having a sales force that canvasses the customer base uh somewhere back in the uh what would it be i guess the 90s uh nvos uh, non vessel operating common carriers uh, started coming into the picture.
1: Which were really and, freight forwarders who created their own tariffs so they could sell yeah. space on, they would make contracts with all the different shipping companies and they would sell their contract space to shippers. And, and my, so-
2: my version of that is they are the priceline.com of ocean carriage.
3: Okay. Yeah.
2: You know, it's simply put, that's basically what they do. They buy yeah. space. They go out and find all the little, the little uh, small customers, intermediate customers, uh, put them together in, in, in one bunch of volume,
3: right. uh, you know,
2: in, in, as volume. And then they sell that volume to the line for a discount. And right. that's their margin.
3: Right. And,
2: and honestly, they save the customer a few bucks.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, and they make some money and they provide a service. Yeah. Which is good because what what started happening, uh, carriers started seeing NVOs as their sales force.
1: Yes,
2: uh, it was a way to remove a sales force which was expensive and let the NVOs handle all this.
1: And that was well, a big they, change. And I
2: don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but they created a monster
3: yeah.
2: that has uh, pretty much destroyed the the uh, uh, the ocean carriers, uh, and and. You know now, the NVOCCs control the market.
1: You mean from and, a revenue? Uh, you mean from a revenue standpoint? That seems from it- a
2: revenue standpoint, from the customer base. You yeah. know, most of the customers in this country use NVOs. Yes. You know, uh, some of the very very big accounts, or the accounts that don't have enough margin in them for an NVO to get involved. Which, by the way, it's very few accounts because even. Yeah. Even wood pulp and uh, KLB accounts and right. cotton accounts even have NVOs in them now. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, they're willing to work on really small margins but large volume. Uh, so, so what's happened is the lines have lost their, how um, well, should sure well, put it? Their, 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 relationships,
3: their
1: connect, relationships. Their relationships.
2: Exactly. Their relationships with, with the their customers. customers.
3: Yeah,
1: that and is.
2: they are now nothing but a boat, or I yeah. shouldn't say boat. The U.S. lines—if we said boat, we were in trouble. Exactly, because it's actually a vessel. But basically, uh, ocean carriers uh, uh, now uh, run vessels yeah. and uh, provide containers. And we don't even it, ocean carriers don't even provide chassis anymore, you uh, know, for the most part. Well, and and they they've gotten out of the business of dealing with people. And they've become kind of like a UPS Right. Uh, of ocean. Yeah, you know, uh, UPS does this one thing that's kind of interesting. You think about using UPS. Okay? They they do a really good job when you when you uh, send a package, right? Right. Normally. Yeah. But when they mess up, try to get somebody on the phone <laughs> and fix the problem. Exactly. It's impossible. Yeah, and that's what's happened in the ocean business. That's now, not all lines are like that. Yeah, but compared to the way it used to be, the lines have have uh, sacrificed customer service, uh, sales. Uh, I I think the lines as a whole their their level of service has dropped terribly. I hate to say this because it's know. Love, you know that's the love of my life. That's what I like to do. Yeah, me world. too.
1: That, it was one of the greatest uh, experiences of my life, especially I was young and foolish and it was, it was fun. It was hard work, but it was, it was so personal and you got to know so many different companies and, and, and you that, changed lives. Yeah.
2: You know, you, you did things that if you didn't do it right, a factory would shut down. That's right. And when you did it right, people had jobs. Exactly. You know, if, if I had made a mistake with some of my larger wood pulp accounts, and, and our pipelines uh, uh, solutions didn't function properly, yeah. it would shut down a mill.
3: Amazing.
1: People would
2: lose their jobs.
1: Wow. Well, other yeah.
2: companies wouldn't have the boxes they need to ship what they need. You know, it, it dominoes down the line. Uh, we would mess up, uh, we'd make a mistake and uh, improperly uh, uh, set up a, a solution where transmissions don't show up. Yes. And, and you literally shut down an entire factory. And, and you and I and all the other people in our business, we did that on a daily basis, not shutting them down, making them yeah. work properly. We found yeah. the solutions that made their business run. And, and we did true. it uh, in a, in a, uh, really nice fashion.
1: That is true. Uh, I feel more important than I, I did a few minutes ago. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but listen, CJ, it's been so much fun talking to you. We'll have to. There's so many uh, stories.
3: We'll
1: have to do it again. But I really want to thank you so much for being a guest today. I want to thank our listeners. It was really enjoyable. So thank, thank
2: you. Thank you, Betsy. Good. Look forward you. to talking to you again soon. All righty. Take, take care. care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting.